0: Hello. You have discovered The Felon File. Formerly known as the 542 and the Blue podcast. FelonFile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author, and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today the real blue beard of 1917 France, how he worked, how he was caught and how he was tried, how many women did he murder, what are the one who got away. Sayon podcast, particularment bon, parquet que vous, bouvet Scott, massacrant, La Longue, Francaise, background music, hard-boiled hosted by Purple Planet, Scott, you're online.
1: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Felon File, a podcast where we look at crime, punishment, the good guys, the bad guys, the weird, the strange, the crazy, the not so crazy, unusual laws, etc. and so on. Things that I find of interest and I hope you do, too. As Victoria said, and thank you, Victoria, for starting us out and getting us organized here, we look at crimes that occur in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the United States. But today, we're going to take an exception to that, and we're going overseas to our friends in the country of France. Now, our topic of conversation today is a gentleman by the name Henry Landru. L-A-N-D-R-U. The newspapers of the day in France and the world called him a bluebeard. What is a bluebeard? Well, bluebeard is a reference to an old French folktale. Uh, the most famous surviving version was written by Charles Perrault and first published in 1697. The story tells of a wealthy man in the habit of murdering his wives, and the attempts of one wife to avoid being murdered, as her predecessors were. And, of course, there have been other tales of bluebird beards, and it's just not isolated to men. We've had other podcasts where we talked about the giggling granny, and we have talked about some f- other female killers who have murdered their husbands and boyfriends. For various reasons, usually monetary, insurance policies, and the like. And the story of Bluebeard has grown so much. Webster's Dictionary gives the word Bluebeard its own definition: the definition of a man who marries and kills one wife after another. And also the term or the word Bluebearding, as this applies. As a way to describe the crime of either killing a series of women, seducing and or abandoning a group of women. As Victoria pointed out, we're going to step across the ocean a little bit and look at our friends in the country of France and how they dealt with this particular gentleman, Mr. Landrieu. Uh, We're going back to the summer of 1917, a Madame Busson was checking the local classified advertising section of the local paper. And one entry in the personal column caught her eye. It read, widower with two children, age 43, with a comfortable income, affectionate, serious and moving in good society. Desires to meet widow with a view to matrimony. Replies are to be sent to Monsieur Fremeant at the Villa at Gambies. You're going to have to bear with me on the French pronunciation of these words. I know I'm not getting them very right. Our Lady Celeste, Our Lady was intrigued. She was a widower. She was a widow of about 40 herself and had a small child. And this being the time period after what was referred to then as the Great War, or World War I, the chances of meeting eligible men among the country's decimated male population was kind of remote. And personal ads and newspapers were kind of the internet dating app, app of the day. So our lady replied to the gentleman and just like people do today on their dating apps, she kind of fudged on her age by 10 years and she left off the fact that she did have a son by the name of Oliver. Now a few days later she received a reply, an invitation inviting to meet in Paris and then travel to his villa In a village about 30 miles outside of Paris. So, as not to scare off the potential possible groom to be, uh, she took her son to stay with her sister and then she went to meet our gentleman. The relationship was apparently a success, and she wrote to her sister several times over the next few weeks with reports of the gentleman being just absolutely fantastic and she even enclosed a couple of photographs of the two of them that were taken together then suddenly in september of 1917 communication stopped the sister continued to write but received no reply now this lack of response puzzled her besides she still had her kid had her sister's kid with her but did not cause her really Super concerned. She presumed that her sister had become so absorbed in her new life that she had chosen to sever all contact with her past, which doesn't make sense if you consider the instincts of a mother. A year later, however, a year later, though, her son Oliver ended up catching the Spanish flu pandemic at that time very similar to what we were dealing with and have been dealing with here worldwide in the 2020's. Now when this happened it became imperative that the sister find her missing sister and she decided to contact the mayor of that particular town and she wrote a letter to him stating that since September of nineteen seventeen she's trying to make contact with her sister, who was living in uh her, his the mayor's village with her fiance, Monsieur Firmiette at the Villa Emtrich. And she says I've written to them both several times without ever receiving a reply. I wonder whether the address I'm using is either incorrect or incomplete. If so, could you inform me? A few days later she received a reply from the from the mayor it's actually better than some emails that i have received as far as speed the mayor regretted that he could find no record of the gentleman ever having lived at the villa he told her that the current tenant of the villa was a monsieur dupont who was not there at the present time the mayor added that he had recently received a letter from another lady who was also looking for her sister who had disappeared who had been with her fiance living in the same village the mayor admitted that this seemed to be a a strange situation but it could be just a mere coincidence and suggested that the two women get together well the next week the two sisters uh, met in Paris and after comparing notes they realized that the fiance of their sisters was the same man. Now the two women ended up going to the police with their suspicions. And at first the detective showed little interest but when the name Cruchette was mentioned they set up and paid attention. They were currently investigating the disappearance of another young lady a Madine Jean Crouchette and her teenage son Andre who had gone to live with a monsieur Dyed at his villa in in the same village. Neither of them had been seen or heard from for more than four years. After making further inquiries the police were convinced that Crouchette from yet and DuPont were aliases for the same man. While they found no evidence to support their suspicions that they could take to court, they were fairly sure that all the missing women were dead. Then on August 10th of 1919, a warrant was issued by the court for the arrest of the individual whose identity corresponded with the aliases that we just mentioned. What happened next was a remarkable coincidence apparently two days later after the warrant was issued. The sister of our first young lady Lacoste was walking down a street in Paris when she spotted a small bald man with an enormous red beard. She recognized him immediately as the man she knew from the pictures. He had an attractive young woman on his arm as he was walking down the street. She followed the couple at a discreet distance as they walked into a pottery shop. She pretended to browse around the store as she eavesdropped on the gentleman and his companion. She ended up getting close enough to hear him order a white dinner service in the name of Goulet. The couple then left the shop and the sister followed but she soon lost them in the crowded streets. Hurrying to the nearest police station she reported what she'd seen and the police descended on the area and located where the suspect had placed his order and had left instructions that it be delivered to a certain address. Well, at dawn the following morning the police showed up on the doorstep of that particular address where they were greeted by a small bald man with a beard and his attractive young companion. They introduced themselves as Mr. and Mrs. Goulot, but the police kind of knew better. It ended up that the man was really known to the police already. His name was Henri Landru a swindler and confidence trickster. He had been convicted uh, five times for fraud and served time in the prison several times. In fact, there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest that dated back to 1914. The young woman turned out to be his mistress, a a Miss Sergret, a 27-year-old shop assistant and part-time actress. Now, the couple were about to leave the country when Landrieu was arrested and there could be little doubt that the police intervention saved the woman's life. Landrieu was taken into custody and charged with the murders of Annie, Combe, Boussan and Crochet. After he was taken into custody and was being searched, the police came across a small black notebook in his jacket pocket it contained a meticulous account of his daily expenditures over a period of four years. It also listed the names of scores of women who had replied to his uh, advertisements. Each one was carefully classified with information about their fortunes, their family, their families, and their names were listed under one of uh, several headings. Number one, to be answered post haste number two without money number three without furniture number four don't reply number five to be answered just briefly Uh, number six possible fortune and number seven to be further investigated to see if they did have money or furniture as it were On one of the pages was a list of 11 names which really kind of caught the police's interest. And this was just the start of their investigation. After months of investigating the entire situation, they succeeded in identifying these 11 women. A 47-year-old widow and native of Buenos Aires. A 59-year-old widow who had inherited 200,000 francs, which he withdrew from her bank account using a forged signature, a 55-year-old widow whose son and daughter had recently died, Hmm. a 19-year-old domestic servant who he had met in Paris and seduced, a 38-year-old married woman who was separated from her husband, a thirty-three year old divorced dressmakers whose personal effects were actually found in in the suspect's house, and a local prostitute. All seven women had one thing in common. They had all vanished without a trace. Shortly after coming in contact with Henri Landru, while one team of detectives was busy working on the contents of the little black book, Another group of detectives addressing the issue of assembling hard evidence against the guy. They had to establish that the ten women that they were charging him with and the boy were indeed, in fact, dead, and that Landrieu had murdered them. Now, our suspect, he was born in Paris in 1869, the son of a foreman steelworker. He was educated there in Paris and he was described as an excellent student in notes and records from the school and he attempted to do some studying for mechanical engineering but he ended up being caught up in the draft or what they referred to as the National Service for France and ended up actually making the rank of sergeant while he was in the military now after he got out of the military things started going sideways for him in eighteen ninety three while still in the army he got his cousin pregnant and he was obliged to marry her when he got out of the military the following year he couldn't afford to return to his studies as, as an engineer so he opened a second-hand furniture store he had big ideas but it just didn't work out for him and he ended up turning to fencing stolen goods and selling them out of his store. And from there he graduated to becoming a thief and a regular con man in his own right. As I mentioned earlier, he did do some time in prison between 1900 and 1908. He was jailed four times for, and he was arrested for a fifth time on July 26, uh, 1914. Now this is just days before the Germany declared war on France he was able to skip bail but even though he didn't show up for court he was convicted and sentenced to 4 years in prison and a warrant was issued for his arrest but weren't able to make that arrest till several years later our current investigation french detectives searched landru's house And they're in Paris and they dug up the garden and the grounds, but all they were able to locate were the remains of three dogs. His neighbors were questioned and the neighbors said that on occasion they had seen dense black smoke coming up from the chimney and that it was accompanied by a foul putrid stench. So this sent the detectives into another direction. They pulled the kitchen stove and shifting through the ashes they recovered a mass of charred human remains this included 47 teeth about 4 pounds of bone fragments mostly skulls hands and feet and it was obvious from the size of the fragments that the bodies to which they had once belonged to had been chopped up into very small pieces and put in the oven in the course of their investigation The French detectives also found a mass of correspondences between Landrieu and 283 different women, almost none of them that they could trace or find. Their suspicion was that he had more than likely killed most or all of them, 283 women, and they were only able to charge him with 10. In reality, however, it would have been impossible for one man to conduct all those affairs, murders and disposals, in just the five-year period. So, despite their suspicions of police work, like I said, had to satisfy themselves with charging him with, with the murders of the ten women and the one boy that were listed in his little black book. His trial started nearly two and a half years after his arrest the case was heard in the French court at the Palace of Justice in Versailles public interest in the trial was so large the press dubbed him a bluebeard and the entrance to the building had to be guarded by police and military troops only a handful of spectators were admitted into the small courtroom uh, which was filled mostly with lawyers and court officials A photograph of the courtroom taken at the time of the trial shows that in the tiny courtroom, immediately below the judicial bench, they had moved a table holding all of the grim exhibits of the case, the fragments of the charred human bones, the teeth, pieces of clothing, buckles and fasteners. And sitting to one side of the table stood the actual kitchen broiler, from Landrew's house. The prosecution started their case by by putting out evidence that Landrew had seduced, robbed, and killed all of the women that he was on trial for, and he had killed one woman's son as well. And he had probably drugged them or suffocated them or strangled them. They really couldn't be sure. And he had spent hours, perhaps even days, chopping up their bodies into tiny pieces and burning them in the stove. Over the next few days the prosecution called a string of witnesses, mostly the relatives of the 11 victims, all of whom confirmed that they had seen their missing relative with the accused shortly before their disappearance. Now the most telling witness, however, ended up being the last woman seen with him, uh, Mrs. Sergret, the young woman who had accompanied Landrieu on a shopping trip in the street in Paris when he had been seen by one of the sisters of the victim. She described how she had become engaged to him, how he had gone by a different name, she had been to the villa with him, when she asked if they had ever quarreled, she replied that they had argued on two occasions, once when a letter was received from her lover addressed in another name, and the other when he caught her looking through some of his papers now Landru's defense attorney took a kind of an odd direction he worked very hard to establish a, a convincing line of defense he suggested that his client wasn't a murderer but he was a white slaver who had abducted the women in question and had shipped them to brothels in South America the prosecutor had a field day with this Screaming out in the courtroom, what? Women who were mostly over 45 years of age? Women whose false teeth, false hair, and identity papers Landrew kept and we have in custody as evidence? The defendant didn't do himself any favors in his own defense. On the stand and in the box listening to testimony, he was arrogant, cocky, and aggressive. He would holler out, "Produce your corpse," and he would bellow that periodically during the open courtroom. At one point, the head judge asked him if he was not, in fact, a habitual liar. Landrew replied, "No, or, sir, I am not a lawyer." Now this rose a laugh from the gallery in the courtroom, but didn't do anything to endear him to the jury. When his notebook was presented in evidence. Landrieu was asked to interpret some of the more cryptic entries, and he refused to do so, saying that it was not his job to do the police's work. Adding that perhaps the police would have preferred to find on page one an entry in these words, I, the undersigned, confess that I have murdered the women whose names are set out herein. And when he was confronted with the fact that his neighbors had frequently complained to local police about the black smoke and the smell emanating from his chimney, he sneered and laughed, saying, Is every smoking chimney and every bad smell proof that a body is being burnt? Ah. Now, despite the lack of identifiable bodies, it took the jury less than two hours to find him guilty on 11 counts of murder not to mention a whole bunch of lesser charges of fraud, deception, theft, etc. Despite a plea from the defense counsel who, if you remember, was trying to establish that his defendant was a white slaver and not a murderer his request for mercy uh, didn't work out and the judge had no hesitation according to court documents in condemning Landrew to death standing after the death sentence was put out Landrieu simply smiled and bowed to the gallery which is composed almost entirely of women anxious to get a glimpse of his strange little man who had had such a power over women and looking at his pictures I don't see it I'm sorry looking at the some of the fo- old photographs of the victims they were quite attractive older ladies I don't think the prosecution was fair in his judgment of the women as not being attractive. Landrew frequently flirted from his audience. Many of the women were actually standing in the courtroom in order to be in there and get a glimpse of this strange man. At one point Landrew got to his feet and gestured towards his chair stating I wonder if there is a lady present who would care to take my seat. A showman to the end, I guess. At four o'clock in the morning on the 22nd of February, the guards came and got him from his cell, telling him to to be brave. Uh, Which he replied to, I am brave. When he was asked if he wanted to make a final confession to the priest, he sneered, never on your life. Besides, I could not think of keeping these gentlemen waiting. Andrew was marched directly into the prison yard where a crowd of spectators who had assembled as witnesses for the execution were being actually forcibly held back by the troops that were assigned as security. Now among the crowd was an American journalist, a Mr. Webb Miller, who happened to be in Paris at the time and wrote a very detailed description of the last seconds of the life of the Bluebeard of Paris. He wrote in one of his columns. On each side, a jailer held Landru by his arms, which were strapped behind him. They supported him and pulled him forward as fast as they could walk. His bare feet pattered on the cold cobblestones, and his knees seemed not to be functioning. His face was pale and waxen, and as he caught sight of the ghastly machine which was the guillotine, he went livid. The two jailers hastily pushed Landrieu's face foremost against the upright board of the machine, and it collapsed and his body crumbled with it as they shoved him forward under the wooden block, which dropped down and clamped his neck beneath the suspended knife. In a split second, the knife flicked down and the head fell with a thud into a small basket. As an assistant jailer lifted the hinge board and rolled the headless body into the big wicker basket, a hideous spurt of blood gushed out where his head was. Another jailer standing in front of the guillotine seized up the basket that contained the head then rolled it, what what the reporter said, like a cabbage into the larger basket and then helped shove it hastily into a waiting van. The van doors were slammed, the horses were whipped into a gallop, and then he was taken away. Webb Miller finished his column with, and I quote, When Landru first appeared in the prison courtyard, I glanced at my watch. Now I looked again. Only 26 seconds had elapsed. And that was the end of The Bluebeard of Paris. Not exactly an Appalachian story. I grant you but an interesting story nonetheless and that is not the end of the story the whole thing pops up again in 1965 in 1965 one of France's leading novelists, a gentleman by the name of Sagan wrote a screenplay basing it on Landrieu's life the film is kind of a black comedy was released under the title of Landrew. Days after the film opened, the production company was contacted by a woman claiming to be Miss Segret. If you remember, that was Landrieu's mistress at the time of his arrest. Now, the writer had assumed that she was dead, but she was able to accurately establish her identity beyond a doubt. After her Bluebeard Boyfriend's Conviction, she had worked for over 40 years as a governess in Lebanon. She retired and returned to France and was living in, I guess what you would call a retirement home. Miss Segret took out an injunction against the writer and producer of the film and sued them for over 200,000 francs for defamation of character, and it went to court the court actually found in her favor but only gave her 10,000 francs it was a small reward for the hounding to which she was subjected to by the press after that occurred and unfortunately it finally got too much for her and she threw herself into the moat of the castle at Orléans she left a suicide note behind saying I still love him meaning Landrieu but I am suffering too greatly I'm going to kill myself and it's amazing that she actually stood by him during the trial and was considered a hostile witness when she testified and that ladies and gentlemen is the real end of the shade of blue story the blue beard of Paris I hope you found it interesting I did when I was doing the research for it if you had like to add something to the story or you have a suggestion for another Shade of Blue story that you'd like to see me research and put together for a podcast, would love to hear from you. You can contact me at felonfile at gmail.com or go straight to felonfile.com and you can contact me through that web page and as well as have access to previous Shades of Blue stories we've done on other felon file podcasts they're available for downloading and listening to as many times as you like share them with your friends i would appreciate it and if you'd like to help us a little bit with expenses that we incur hosting of the website the research material we get from various archives that want us to reimburse them for making copies of Court records that Victoria and I request from time to time from various locations. You can go to felonfile.com and in the very bottom, there is a link where you can go to buy me a coffee and you can buy us a coffee online. That helps us out a little bit. And we do appreciate it, but it's not mandatory. We'll still try to be here as much as we possibly can to put out new podcasts for you guys that are interested in them. That's our Shade of Blue story for today. I hope you found it of some interest. Come back again next Saturday at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for another Shade of Blue story on Felon File. Victoria, you've got the control board again. Close us out. Take us away. And ladies and gentlemen, remember in the meantime, be safe, be secure. If you get the opportunity, Do something nice for somebody. It's really the right thing to do. And if more people did it, the world would be a better place. Bye, y'all.
0: You have been listening to the Felon File podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these web pages. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End. I almost forgot. If you would like to support the Felon File podcast. Please go to. BuyMeACoffee.com backslash Felon File. Here you can buy Scott a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses that it takes to do Felon File. That's. BuyMeACoffee. .com Backslash Felon File Once more thank you for listening.